Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Philip Lopate is the editor of the Contemporary American Essay. He is the author also of, well, many, many books, but To Show and to Tell, The Craft of Literary Nonfiction, and four essay collections, Bachelorhood, Against Joie de Vivre, Portrait of My Body, and Portrait Inside My Head. He is the editor of the anthologies The Glorious American Essay, The Golden Age of the American Essay, The Art of the Personal Essay, which, by the way, was one of my school books and which I still have on my shelf today, and that was from like 20 or whatever years ago, so that was awesome, Writing New York and American Movie Critics. He was awarded a John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship, a New York Public Library Center for Scholars and Writers Fellowship, two National Endowment for the Arts Grants, and two New York Foundation for the Arts Grants. He is a professor of writing at Columbia University's nonfiction MFA program and lives in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Philip. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. We're going to discuss your whole body of work, which is like astounding in its breadth and scope and everything. But your most recent is The Golden Age of the American Essay, 1945 to 1970. So welcome. Thank you. This this is part of a three-set Anthology of the American Essay. It's a crazy project uh, that's taken me the last four or five years to do. And the first one was the Glorious American Essay, which was the whole arc of the American Essay. This one, the Golden Age, is really concentrating on the post-war period, 1945 to 1970. And the third one will be the Contemporary American Essay, which is the 21st century essay. And I know that moms are very busy. I'm not a mom. I have certain genetic limitations in that regard. But anyway, I think that even though these books are very fat, the individual selections are fairly short. So 
a mom on the run could read one at a time and then go back to all the many things that she's doing. I like the marketing pitch. Very good. (laughs) And I agree. I published an anthology with and have another one coming out. And that's what I keep saying to people. I'm like, you only have to read one essay at a time. It takes like, you could check your Instagram instead. It takes no, you know, it takes no time. So I agree. Uh, Yes. And the the other thing about anthologies is that nobody reads them from cover to cover, from start to finish. You can jump around anything that, that you think would be enjoyable to you. You just latch onto that. So that was my, I wanted to do a real offering, a smorgasbord of all these different voices and make it as inclusive as possible. I still get such a thrill. I feel like essays give you a peek into someone's consciousness that it's very hard to get somewhere else. And even in this with like Joan Didion and Mary McCarthy and all these legends, Susan Sontag, just to see even what they were doing like at their desk or I finished writing this or this is how I felt about it. I mean, I just think it's amazing. It's like you get to peek into someone's diary, even the more literary or intellectual essays, whatever. There's something just so personal, obviously, about them that over time, just, I don't know, it, it like gives me chills. I just love this as a, as a form. Yes, me too. I mean, I, I, think, I think it's so, I think what you said is so right that there's something intimate about the essay. It's a conversation between the writer and the reader as though the, the writer is leaning forward and whispering into the reader's ear, and meanwhile, tracking his or her own thoughts, you know? So it is, there is something like a diary about it. Yeah. Yes. Like a personal letter or something. They just didn't know me. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's so, that's so true. And one of the things that I did, especially in the first volume, The Glorious American Essay, was I tried to show how essays could appear in the form of a letter mm-hmm. or even in the form of a speech or even in the form of a newspaper column. So they're all, they're all letters, you know, in, in a sense, you know, from the, from the writer to the reader, you know. Emily Dickinson, I wrote a letter to the world that did not write to me. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Well, I've had your book, The Art of the Personal Essay. I, I feel like it was required in some class I took and I've moved 8 million times and it's come with me from place to place. So, you know, you've been like a part of the fabric of whatever library I've <laughs> You know, I've had so. <laughs> it's 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 been my my most popular and and best selling book and and you know it became a kind of standard text in colleges and universities and even high schools. So you know one of the reasons that I did these this this new three volume project was that for years I've been so identified with the art of the personal essay, and publishers have said, "Do you want to update it? Do you want to revise it?" And I said, "No, no." Let's leave it the way it is, you know. You know, it is what it is, you know. But then I began to get the itch to do another anthology. Originally, it was supposed to be one anthology. And then it grew like topsy into three because I found so many interesting essays that, that it couldn't just be one, you know. But there's something about, I, I know you probably feel this when you edited your anthologies. There's something about that, uh, doing an anthology that's very pleasurable because you're falling in love with other writers, you know, it's not all about you. I've done plenty of books that are just full of love paper from beginning to end. But in this case, you know, I'm the maitre d' seeding these various different writers, you know. And the main thing that the main test for why I put an essay into one of these books was that I really liked it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't put in something that I thought was important, but I, I disliked. Yeah. So in a way, it's, a, it's very personal because it, it's about personal taste. But in another way, it's not about my ego. It's about celebrating this beautiful work by other ways. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I felt like, yeah, like I'm a hostess, like it's a party that I'm having, but I'm letting everybody in, right? They're all like sitting around my living room sharing their stories, but we can't really broadcast that to the world. So an anthology, next best way. And and I think it's I think I have a different personality when I'm when I'm just reading or writing than I do when I'm doing a, when I'm doing an anthology because when I'm reading for pleasure if I don't like something I can be very critical like that's it I don't I don't have to finish every book that's it for that book but then when I'm in the when I put on my hat that's the anthologist I'm trying to see it from the writer's point of view more I'm not so picky and scornful I'm much more tolerant. Of different side of me is brought out. Ah, the nice side, I guess. <laughs> the sweeter side. The sweeter side. <laughs> well, I was really interested in this volume of it, in the way you analyzed sort of the rise and fall of the essay in American history and how you linked essayism and liberalism and how some, you know, historical moments were more ripe for this form and why even linking it to, you know, overcoming the Nazis and the position versus Europe and the U S and, and how this art form has sort of shifted over time. And I'm curious now where you see the essay in relation to sort of the greater macro, you know, nationalistic vibe of, of today. Well, I definitely, I definitely began to see volume two, the, the golden age of the American essay, as both a celebration of a, of a time when essays were very welcome, and also as a debate about liberalism, you know, because it seemed to me in 1945, there was this golden moment of tolerance, you know, because America had, had triumphed over uh, totalitarian governments. And there was this spirit of like, you know, you know, the African-American soldiers were returning from the war, and, and there were all these books and movies that basically the message was, you know, we're all part of one family and, you know, anti-Semitism is bad, racism is bad, sexism is bad. Let's just welcome everybody as part of one family. And then there were cracks in liberalism and people started attacking liberalism from the left and the right. And so, you know, it went from this moment of, of all inclusiveness to something that was that was much more crisis mode. And now, of course, we're going through a lot of crises and a lot of polarity and a lot of division. And I think one of the reasons that the essay at this particular moment is a key form is that people are confused. We're getting too much information and too little wisdom or understanding. So, and experts are no longer trusted. So therefore, what Virginia Woolf called the common reader goes to essayists who are trying to figure it out without being experts trying to figure out what to make of this very confusing moment, you know. And one of the things about good essays is that the essayist is not just trying to write what his or her peer group thinks, but is trying to write individually what, what you really think, not what you're supposed to think. So it becomes, it becomes a form for freedom to assess things that are problematic. Interesting. You know, so even if, even if you are essentially a progressive and and subscribe to the notion of political correctness, you still are allowed in the essay, which is a form identified with doubt, self-doubt, skepticism, and thinking against oneself, you're allowed to play out all the different possibilities, variations, and uncertainties. And that's the key word, if I could say, uncertainties. That is, we're living through a time of real uncertainty, you know? So, you know, I, I'm on the side of, 
of immigrants, of diversity, and so on. So I am not on the side of white supremacy, you could say. But that doesn't make me so unique. But it just means that, you know, I'm aware that not everybody thinks the way I do. Interesting. Yeah, I liked how even in the introduction, you had a whole thing about the Black essay and all like all these different ways in which different voices were represented over time and, and what that does for the communities at large. Yes, because I think one of the things that the essay could do, I think even more than the novel, is that minorities and different groups are drawn to it in order to articulate what it means to be in this minority. And so to some degree, it becomes a kind of pursuit of identity to the this minority, but it also, like like Richard Rodriguez has an essay called Hispanic, in which he, he doubts some of the cliches about the Hispanic. So you both have the right to, to talk about how you are part of a group and how you're not part of it, how you do, you can't go along with the tribe, you know? Yep. Which I think is very refreshing. I feel like, I don't know, just personally, and I know you're like the biggest writer ever, so I can't even like share my personal experience without feeling ridiculous about it. But I have been writing essays. Like that's how I process my thoughts. Like I've been writing and publishing essays since I was 14. And I feel like it's, it's my way of sort of finding people in the world who might understand making me less alone, but also the other people. And I feel like it's, I don't know. I feel like the essay format is, is such a, I don't know. It's just a, a way to, to process that so many people use, especially honestly in the motherhood space. I mean, there are so many essay sites and I know we have moms no time to write as like a medium publication now too, but there's so many sites devoted to many moms and other, you know, maybe perhaps it's one of those groups that you discussed too, like dealing with a lot of stuff and trying to figure it all out. And that's how they, they do it. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals. You can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help 
and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. Absolutely. And, and, and as you know, you know, doing, let's say, the 1970s, you know, one of the aspects of feminism was, was women writing essays questioning the maternal instinct, let's say, you know, how, you know, mothers unconditionally love their kids and also sometimes really want to kill their kids, you know, <laughs> or at least smack them. I don't know? know what you're talking about. <laughs> you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I, I do think that some notion, you know, like, like the maternal instinct has a piece of reality, but it also has a piece of propaganda in it, you know, and so it needs to be deconstructed somehow. And that's, that's one of the things that's happened, you know, in the last few decades, you know, is questioning what it means to be at the beck and call of another human being. Interesting. So what is your typical day like? Like, do you wake up and write? Do you wake up and read? Do you research the essays? Are you always on the hunt for amazing essays to include in something? Like, do you just read the newspapers all day? Like, what is your day like? Okay, I, I usually wake up, have a cup of coffee and some version of breakfast and read the newspaper. Okay, when I was doing the research for these three books, which went on for about four years, I would gather books together. And sometimes I would read three collections of essays a day, one in the, one in the morning, and I'd take a break for lunch, then I'd one in the afternoon, and then early evening, the third one. Okay, by that time, you know, I was ready for a nap. What can I tell you? I mean, <laughs> and on a good day, I would find, uh, let's say, one, one or two essays that I thought, okay, this, this could really work, you know. A glorious day would be if I found three essays. Sometimes I found no essays, you know. It's like, it was a little bit like cruising. I was ready to fall in love, you know, and, and it wasn't happening sometimes, you know. <laughs> it was a resistance between me and the writer, you know. So a lot of reading. But I will say that even after the project was completed, I still need to read every day. I just need that time to process somebody else's thoughts. You know, Charles Lamb, the great essayist, said, I cannot think books think for me. It's very hard just to sit down and try to think. You know? So sometimes I need a, a text to bounce off of in order to think. Like that. So for instance, you know, in, in volume two, I was reading this A Liberal Imagination by Lionel Trilling. And he says in the introduction that at the moment, there's a liberal consensus, you know, that basically everybody's agreed on certain things. And this has a good side and it has a bad side. So the phrase, the liberal consensus, you know, was lodged in my brain and about 3.30 in the morning, I woke up and said, yes, the liberal consensus, you know, that's one of the ways I can construct this book, you know, if there's a liberal consensus, you know, what does that tell me? So, but I didn't, I didn't just think of it. I needed Lionel Trilling. I needed something to bounce off of, okay? So the moms may not always have time to read, but I'm somehow always find time. <laughs> Sometimes it irritates my wife and daughter. <laughs> well, it's a form of it's a form of withdrawal, you know. 
I sometimes irritate my husband too. You know, I'm always reading, especially at night once I finish all the emails and work and interviews. And like, it's for me, it's the most relaxing thing. I can't go to bed without it. Like it's, I look forward to it all day, you know? And then, but that's also the time to catch up and like, how was your day and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, now I'm just going to, you know, <laughs> I'm going to read another <laughs> I'll tell you after I finish reading. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but yes, I, I am familiar with that feeling. And I don't mean to leave him out, you know, but he, you know, it was interesting because he was like, well, it is, you know, it, when you read, it's, it's like, it like takes me completely away. He's like, you might as well not even be in the room. Like you're not paying attention. You're, you know, and I'm like, well, honestly, I, you know, here I am and I'm like reading whatever I'm actually, I'm in the middle of like Venice right now in my head. Right. Like I'm like, in the middle exactly. Well, I think I, I think I, I started reading as a survival tactic because I came from a family, two parents and four kids, all pretty loud and articulate. And the only way that I could at all escape was to put a book in front of my face, which was allowed in that family. What number were you? You were allowed, you were allowed to, to not participate or shout or argue, you know, if you were reading. So, yeah, I started reading a lot. Wow. <laughs> I think that's why I have four kids myself and my fourth kid is a boy and he started reading like, I don't know, four and a half, five. He reads a lot. He reads better than anybody in the whole family, probably. I think he's just like looking for some peace and quiet because it's such... Exactly. Exactly. Survival mechanism. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Oh my gosh. Okay. So after this sort of heroic project, what are you going to do next? I think what I'm going to do next is I've written a lot of essays since my last collection, which was called Portrait Inside My Head. I had done these four collections, Bachelorhood, Against Gerard de Riva, A Portrait of My Body, and Portrait Inside My Head. And I'd also done other collections, like a book of my film writings called Totally Tenderly, Tragically. So I've written a lot of personal essays. I've written a lot of literary criticism, and I've written a lot of movie criticism. So now I'm going to go through this pile and see if I can put together We'll say two collections. One will be personal essays and memoir pieces, and the other will be books and movies. That's what I'm thinking of now. I love that. Okay. So it's, 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 it's an interesting project because sometimes you, you have an assignment and you write something, like let's say a book review, and it's perfectly fine for the occasion. But is it good enough to put inside a book? Sometimes it, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. So I'm reading all this stuff with, I hope, a measure of detachment, saying... Mm-hmm. You know, this is really good. This is just okay, you know, <laughs> and seeing what will, what will survive and what won't, you know, to try to, because I've got, I've got all the material. And I'm sure I'm going to be writing new essays along the way. So I've got the material. I've just got to see what does it to live and what's going to you know, be buried. Wow. That's my next project. You could even do a third. It's just called the reject pile, you know. Oh, my God. You know, that's so funny because I once had this fantasy of starting a magazine called Kill Fee. <laughs> and this would be a magazine that would be a magazine for writers, but my wife is a graphic designer and it would be artists as well and architects, you know, who did projects that, you know, were rejected, you know, and I'm sure there'd be a lot of fascinating stuff, you know, in that, you know, and I have, I certainly have had my share of Kofi's. Oh my gosh, I love that. Well, if you want to do it, call me up. I love that idea. <laughs> Well, we could we could co-edit it, but you know it it needs a banker or some patron to do with some money yeah. to do that. Okay. Yeah. Well, put a pin in that idea. I think that could be really fun. Could even be just an anthology instead of a magazine, right? Exactly. It could be a one shot yeah. one shot 
something or other. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Kilfi and anthology. Right? So funny. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of times we do things that, that are commissioned, that we care about, and for whatever reason, it just doesn't work out. You know, screenwriters know this all the time. They're like screenplay after screenplay and it doesn't get the green light, you know? And sometimes you read them and you think, well, this was a good screenplay. What was the problem with it? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, that's exciting. That could be fun. Okay, great. Get right to work. <laughs> so now when you're going through all of your work, you have to put some in the kill fee pile and then. Yes. Yeah. I have to kill it myself. My kill fee pile is probably a lot bigger than yours because I bet a lot more of yours got accepted. <laughs> I'm not so sure about, you know, you're being modest. But anyway, <laughs> all, all writers go through the same thing. And, and, and all writers go through uncertainty and, you know, this feeling of, oh, am I bluffing? Or am I really a writer? You know? And ultimately, the world treats you like, says, yes, you're a writer, so shut up about that, you know, and just do your work, you know. But for the longest time, there is this kind of anxiety. Yeah, this whole imposter syndrome, I feel like. Yes, exactly. Most authors on the podcast are like, oh, I don't have any advice. I'm not a real author. I'm like, I just read your book. I'm pretty sure you are, but. No, I have advice. I mean. Yeah, tell me your advice. My advice is to read deeply in the form, not just contemporary work, but, you know, older work. By dead authors as well, so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's already been there, you know, and all of these moves you can really learn from. So read, read, read. And the other one is um, sit, sit, sit. You know, there's a Yiddish word called zitzfleisch. You know, you got to be able to apply your buttocks to the chair and put in the hours, which means in a way to accept a certain kind of, I don't know if the word is, is loneliness or isolation, but I have known students who were were very talented who did not become writers because they they couldn't do this this act of sitting and being alone with themselves. And I've known other writers who were students who were somewhat less talented, but they could put in the hours. You put in a million hours and it gets better. Very true. You do revisions and and you get smarter. Yes. Also, I feel like if you're sitting all day writing, you're not really alone. I mean, I don't feel like you're alone, right? You're no, yeah, you're you're not alone. You know, you you're you're with your your perspective, understanding reader. This reader who you may not, you may have no one in your life who you feel understands you as well as this reader. Yeah, the reader, the characters. You know, it's like a it's not it's a party. You know, <laughs> it is a party. Yes, you're not alone. That's what very well put. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on this show. This was so, enter- like, just, I wanted to say entertaining, but that seems like a flippant thing to say. I like entertaining, you know. I, that's another thing that, that I discovered as a writer, which was that at first when I was writing, I thought, well, why should I entertain this self-satisfied bourgeois reader, you know? And then I realized I myself wanted to be entertained as a reader. And, and that was not an insult, you know. And we need to entertain our readers. We need to engage them. It doesn't mean we need to flatter them. Sometimes we need to provoke them. But that's another kind of stimulation. We need to be entertaining. Okay. So then I'll keep my word. (laughs) I won't edit it out. Great. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. And we'll get back in touch about the anthology. Thank you so much. Okay. Great talking to you. Bye, Phyllis. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.